0: Samuel, if you would please, and uh, we're going to read a very familiar passage of scripture and um, I'd invite you to stand with me and uh, follow along as I read. Um, Of course, this is the the well-known story of David and Goliath. So chapter 17 of 1 Samuel and we're going to read the whole chapter, okay? Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Succa, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succa and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side. And Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. There came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and a shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words, of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem of, in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul in, uh, to battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, "'Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain.'" And these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of the thousands. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they all, sorry, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning, and left the sheep with the keeper, and took the provisions, and went. As Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers As he talked with them, behold, the champion of the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from, toward, from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of its mouth. And if if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. And he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy, and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with sword and spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sherim. As far as Gath and Ekron and the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, I will inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from, the, from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Lord, would you allow us, now as we spend some time working through this passage, would you allow us to have clarity of thought, Lord, would you allow us to to allow the, the text to speak, and Lord, that we would not bring a, all of our ideas that maybe we typically would bring to a story like this a familiar story and Lord, although we know the end of the story, would you would you help us, Lord, to see this story as it unfolds so that we can we can experience the impact of what it is that you want us to see in this passage, and ultimately that would reveal Christ in all his glory. So help us today to think, to be clear, to be humble, and to be teachable. Lord, allow me as your messenger to reflect your truth, to be faithful to your word, and to Lord uh, declare the glories of the gospel, Lord, through this passage we ask in your precious holy name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. That is probably the longest reading we have done here at Gateway, and I'm tempted to say you are dismissed, right, after something like that. Um, my father, um, being, being British, had this great gift of, of reading scripture, and I definitely miss that about him, because when he got done reading a passage like this, it really was like, all right, we're done because he could pull out just in reading things that are there. I certainly don't have that gift, but I'm thankful for the privilege of being able to read God's word. So today we're in a very familiar passage of scripture, aren't we? I mean, all of you have probably heard the story of David and Goliath, whether you've been part of the church or not. It's, it's part of the fabric of our culture. Even to use the analogy of David and Goliath, I mean, you're going to hear it in things like the Super Bowl, right? Well, you know, this team, they're kind of like David going up against Goliath, you know, and it's become this kind of vernacular um, that isn't necessarily the point of the story. But we kind of pick up in our culture this vernacular of going up against these these giants or these difficulties in kind of a, a casual way. And so as a familiar passage, we do have to kind of force ourselves to step back a little bit and look at this Afresh, there is a sense in which in literature like this, there are surprises that you're, you're waiting to see happen. And if you know the story, you already know the surprises, and so you're not surprised. But if you're reading it for the first time, or if you're listening to it for the first time, um, you are surprised as to what's happening. And so we got to be careful. For example, um, I've heard this, this story preached and taught um, in many ways that, in my opinion, undermine the biblical record rather than remain faithful to it. For example, in the VeggieTales version, um, Dave and the Giant Pickle, um, and I honestly don't, I don't mind um, being, you know, trying to bring things to a, to a place where, where kids can understand that. The problem is they've taken liberties and have not been true to the essence of the text, and here's why. Dave is upset over not being allowed to join his brother's who have all gone off to war. He is resigned to staying at home and taking care of the farm, and when a giant pickle is sent to attack his village, Dave relies on God's teaching and his own self-esteem to fight the monster. Uh, This passage is not about David's self-esteem and going from one extreme of not having self-esteem to having self-esteem, and therefore he can do this. That is not what this passage is talking about. I've heard sermons preached, I mean, actually heard it. This is not like I've heard it, talked about people hearing it. I mean, I've actually heard this, okay? Sermons preached where there, where there's encouragement to be like David as we fight the many giants in our lives, which range from angry neighbors to financial debt to going through cancer. And what's, what's brought out of this passage is more this, you know, just fight the giant, trust God, you know, follow his word. Now, those principles are true as far as other places of scripture, but that's not the, the focus and the point of what's happening in this text. I've also heard people talk about, you know, the stones that David picks up. Each stone represents a spiritual quality. For example, faith, love, hope, patience, um, what else can we pick there? Uh, how about joy? Okay, fine. And so so you know, so if you're going to go and face these giants, take these character qualities with you. And the question is then, then which one did he pull out of the bag that he slung and he threw? See, you, you, you fill into the story all sorts of things when you make it a moral lesson. And that's what happens so much. And we want to be careful with that. And some have said, for example... Goliath had four brothers, and so David had ultimate faith because he had one stone for each brother. See, that's exactly what we want to have, is that kind of faith. Now, you've probably heard other things, right? And I'm just, I'm just saying, that this is such a familiar passage of Scripture that you've, you've, you've heard it in all different kind of contexts. You've heard it in liberation theology, which is more the you know the raising people out of the ashes of their oppression to fight the Goliath of well, I don't know what we'll talk about corporations or something like that and to get on in this world. Right? This analogy is used in so many ways that we actually are drawn away from the truth of the text here. Um, so I just I want to encourage you and I want to I want to be mindful of myself that it's so easy to bring those things in because we are familiar with them and they've been a part of our fabric, but let me suggest a few keys that will help us unlock this passage as we begin to think through um, this text, okay? Um, I'm not gonna, they're not gonna be on the screen there, but just some things to think about, all right? Number one, um, there are themes that are running through this chapter that have already been running through 1 Samuel that will shed light on what's going on here, all right? And, and as, as we study through a book, we're not just coming at chapter 17 and saying, there's the story, that's all we need to think about is chapter 17, the story is there in the context of a greater story, you with me there? So there's something that's going on here and so there are, there are some themes, let me give you one. Uh, one that picks, picks up in chapter 16 is seeing as God sees. All right, don't look on the outward appearance but God looks where? On the heart. All right, and that's going to come into play here in this passage. In fact, there's an incredible illustration of that. There's this theme of, of king. And who is the king? And what is a king supposed to do? And what does he not do? Um, how does he fail? And we're going to see that kind of unfold here. There's, the, the, there's a theme of man that was picked up um, as along with the idea of king. But there's now this, 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 this kind of vernacular that's being used that takes just the name man or the idea of man and is fleshed out in this passage too that we picked up in chapter 16 uh, when Saul says, okay, go get me that man that can play the harp, okay? And then there's this this reality of the spirit of God. Um, David did not defeat Goliath because he spent hours and hours and hours perfecting his sling. Now he may have, he may have done that but the power behind David actually slaying Goliath was not David. And if you remember, in chapter 16, what happens? The Spirit of God departs from Saul and rushes upon David. So what we have here is we have a, a, a Spirit of God moving in the chosen, anointed king. Hasn't been crowned yet. But he then is able to do these things That normal man could not do because he is specifically empowered and strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Okay? All right, secondly, the voice to listen to in this story is not so much found in the action but in the words spoken by David and other characters. I mean, just just think about the actual action in in the story. It happens right at the end, right? After. David and Goliath are barking words at each other. They just run at each other. David grabs the stone, boom, knocks him down. All right, there's the action. It's over with. I think one of the more humorous statements in here um, is, uh, let's see. Da, 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 da. I'm reading down here. Yeah, verse 16. For 40 days the Philistines came forward and took a stand morning and evening. No, that's not what I was looking for. Uh, bada, bada. It says they all gathered here fighting the Philistines. Oh yeah, verse 19. Now, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. There's no fighting going on. There was a lot of beating the chest and rawr, war cry. There was no fighting going on at all. Okay. Now I know I, the point is they're, they're gathered to fight, but there's actually no fighting yet taking place. Right? So the words that are spoken are really the, the areas that we want to focus in on. And then the third thing here, you and I are not David. We are not supposed to be David. So as we study this passage, don't be putting yourself in David's shoes. The reality is we are, we are part of Israel's army cowering at this incredibly um, formidable enemy by the name of Goliath. And what we need is we need a champion. Again, I'm, trying to, I'm giving you the kind of the I'm giving you the focus and the direction before we actually walk through it because I think it's really helpful to think through this passage afresh in a way that, that sees Christ as opposed to sees me. Okay? So um, with that, um, let's think through now the setting. Verse one, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle and they were gathered at Succa and we can read down a little bit there verse three kind of, kind of really paints the picture. The Philistines stood on, on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley in between them. If you've ever been to Israel, part of the tours that they take you on, one of the places you can stop at is David's Brook. I've been there. I've picked up a stone from David's Brook. Um, and I think, um, let's see, I know there's some other people that were with us that, that we picked up stones from David's Brook. And I think as the bus was leaving, the pickup truck was coming in to dump more pebbles in David's Brook. <laughs> for us to grab, Um, so um, we don't always know if that actually was Davis Brook or it just happens to be close enough to the road that it's sentimental to do that, Um, but they did take us to a place where um, they actually think this is the the location where the battle took place, so when you you think about this battle, uh, it says mountains here, Um, think more of mounds or hills rather than mountains, okay? Because if, if Goliath is coming out, remember, they didn't, they didn't have a portable you know, microphone system. He's coming out, he's bellowing, but I don't know about you, if you go out into the middle of a field somewhere and you scream, it's kind of hard to hear. This is close combat, so to speak, close conversation. They would come up, they would, they would kind of line up on either side of this field, and then Goliath would come in the middle. And so they were coming up and facing each other, but don't, don't think about these huge mountains, and it's like taking a day to get down there. It wasn't like that at all. It's actually much closer. Think of maybe a, a few football fields wide, so to speak, and you can see the army there. All right, so this is, this is a, an incredible scene. All these soldiers and Goliath coming out. Okay? But still, you're, you're left wondering exactly what, the narrator means there in verse 19, as I, as I mentioned. you know They're all gathered, they're fighting. Um, but it paints the picture of, at least there's a conflict going on, and a potential conflict that is gonna take place. And I wanna begin now by focusing our attention um, on Goliath. But you know what I failed to do, is I failed to give you um, the, the focus of, of, of this whole chapter, right? Sorry, I skipped by that, all right? So here's how we're gonna look at this. The theme is simply this, all right? Following the theme of of, of seeing as God sees, which we saw in chapter 16, it continues on to this passage, and we want to come to this passage thinking this way, that God is drawing us to see um, who the true champion really is. We are so easily impressed by what we see, are we not? Now, wasn't that one of the struggles that even Samuel had after he's grieving over Saul, he comes and he looks at the first son of Jesse, Eliab, and he's like, ah, he must be the guy. Because he actually had a lot of similarities to Saul. So we want to really see who the the champion um, actually is. So we want to begin by looking at Goliath, the champion of the Philistines. Verse four, and there came out from, from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath. Gath was the closest city of the Philistines to that particular location. He just happens to be from that uh, that city. But the, 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 the narrator's description here is so very, very detailed. I think it's probably the most detailed description of any soldier in the Bible that we have. And it's, it's purposely laid out for us to strike us with awe, and to cause fear to rise up within us, and he does a pretty good job, doesn't he? All right. So I want to say this to begin with, um, as we continue on in verse four, he is huge. Do you agree with that? Yeah. In fact, they, they say just these measurements. He's probably about nine foot six or something like that. And just to kind of give you some comparisons, this might date you a little bit, but there's Shaquille O'Neal, who's about seven foot one. Um, there's Joan Howard, another basketball player, six foot nine. Um, Hulk Hogan, um, six foot seven. Um, he's just short, boy. Um, and then there's Andre the Giant. You guys remember Andre the Giant? Seven foot four. I mean, he's just a, a little wimp. I mean, we're, we're talking about a human specimen that is incredibly huge. I mean, so massively huge that you are just like, ugh, how could anyone fight this guy? Now add to that, not only is he huge, but he's also powerful. Look at his armor. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs. So his armor alone was about 125 pounds. What kind of man could walk around and fight nimbly in battle with that kind of armor? The answer, a huge, powerful man. That's the answer. And you look at his weapons. A javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of the spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. This, this javelin was huge, and just, just the actual end of the spear the head of the spear was like 15 to 16 pounds. If you've done shot put before, it's a 16 pound put, right? That is not easy to, to, you know, to carry around. I actually think what's really humorous about this story is this shield bearer. I mean, just imagine you're the guy who's been assigned to carry this shield, all right? I mean, you just think of how big this guy is. I mean, you're, you're walking throughout the day dragging the shield behind you because it's so heavy, Now, the whole point here is that we are to be impressed. We are to actually be in awe. We're we're to be afraid because of the stature of this man. You see how this theme of looking on the outward appearance, and God's saying, listen, that's not what we do. We don't do that when we're looking for people to be leaders in our own group. But we are not to be impressed with the outward appearance even of the enemy. Now, guys, this hits home when you watch a video of a bunch of people in orange who are getting their heads chopped off, doesn't it? Isn't there a part of you that just is like a little bit terrified at the evil and the carnage and the thinking and the attitude and the behavior of these people? And it, it should, in one sense, shake us but it shouldn't cause us to despair And not only is he huge and not only is he powerful but he's also mouthy as Dale Davis says we must listen to three verses of hairy chested braggadocio as Goliath bellows for a challenger to engage him in a single combat and here's what he said. It says, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose, for, uh, choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll be your servants. And if you win, then we'll be your servants. So Goliath is saying, first of all, am I not literally the Philistine? Am I not the specimen of what? the Philistine nation is all about. And he says, choose a man. Now wait a minute. Didn't Israel already choose a man? Didn't they say, no, 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 Samuel, we're not going to do it your way. We are going to have a king like the other nations. And that king is going to lead us into battle. We've already chosen a man. So the question now is what? Where is this man? You choose a king, you expect that king to lead you into battle, but he's nowhere to be found. That's chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, by the way, in verses 19 and 20, that tell us about their choice of Saul as their king. And Saul, of course, was impressive. I mean, he was head and shoulders above. He was the kind of man they wanted to be their king. They were ready to go until they come into this conflict. So the answer to that question is going to be unfolded pretty soon. But it's worth remembering that in the previous chapter we're told of God's rejection of Saul and that the spirit of God departed from Saul. So Saul was no longer empowered by the strength that comes through the spirit of God. Instead, Saul was left to his own strength, and as we will see, is cowering in fear with the rest of Israel. And then, Goliath says, not just choose a man, but now give me a man. Verse 10, and the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. The word defy Is a little weak here, really, when you think about it. It's more literally, I scorn, I mock the ranks of Israel. And keep your eye on that word because we'll be coming up again and again and again in this passage. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they or the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The word dismayed here literally means to be shattered, um, to be greatly afraid. The only other time the word translated dismayed or shattered, is in 1 Samuel, uh, sorry, in 1 Samuel, is in chapter 2 and verse 10. So go back to chapter 2 and verse 10 of 1 Samuel. This actually is Hannah's song. And in Hannah's song, she is looking ahead at the king, and what God was going to do. Notice what it says, verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them they will... He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. And so the word there is, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. So the ones that right now are broken to pieces are the people of Israel. The king should be standing in his place representing God, but that's all fallen down because of his disobedience. So we're left with the question, who is this person that's going to be the king? And, and, and this is where we begin to kind of develop some of these motifs, the king motif, right? We have Saul who was chosen by the people, and God allowed it to happen, but then he removes Saul from being king, and he, he says to Samuel, I, I have prepared for myself a king. That's chapter 16, verse 1. And then in the midst of all of this, the, the, the story begins to weave and, and we find out that, that Saul, and this is not necessarily chronological, but it's part of the fabric of the literature here, Saul now is in this, in this situation where he's being tormented by a, a, a spirit from God that is harming him. And so the servants are looking for a man who can soothe him with music. And so Saul says, find me that man. Bring me that man. And we find out that the man that Saul wants and the king that God is providing are one and the same, David, being brought together here. And what we're, what we're hearing here is an echo of the same theme now in chapter 17, because the man should be Saul because he is the sitting king, and we know the end of the story here, and we know that it is actually David that is the one that is going to be coming to be the man. So there's this weaving of this theme that is taking place. Now, you can step back and also say this, that they shouldn't even be having this battle if it were not for Saul and his failure to defeat the Philistines. Remember back in the day when he had that vow and his son ate of, the, of the, um, the honey? And at the end of that story, here's what Jonathan says, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great, and the, the, the rest of the story just kind of shows us how they were not able to finalize the, the, the defeat and the destruction of the Philistines that day. So now, here we have... The Philistines, with their champion, coming and taunting them. So Israel is lacking a man to fight Goliath. And Israel is is lacking a king who will do what he's supposed to do. But by God's providence, the king whom God had chosen is none other than David. And the man that the servants choose is none other than David. And so all these things now are coming together. David is, in a sense, the anointed, but the secret anointed king and today in this passage he is going to kind of come out of the closet and be that champion for Israel alright so we pick it up now at verse 7 but the Lord said to Samuel sorry this is sorry going back here to chapter 16 and verse 7 the Lord said to Samuel do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him for the Lord does not see as, as man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And friends, this comes into, into, into play now as we look at Goliath and we look at how strong he is and we look at his formidable presence and we are impressed. And they are impressed and they're impressed so much so that they're depressed, okay? They're shattered, they are afraid. And so we recognize that he is intimidating. And, and the people of Israel are, are shaking in their boots. And he's coming out for 40 days, terrorizing them. Now we move from Goliath to David. David, the champion of Israel. The section begins in such a way that we are introduced again to David as if we've never met him before, right? Right? Here's the family, here's Jesse, here are his sons, and by the way, there is this young one by the name of David. The Valley of Elah is about 12 miles away from Bethlehem, just to kind of get the geography that's going on here. And it's on one of these trips that David takes, because he's working at home, taking care of the sheep, but his father keeps on sending him back and forth from the line of battle. And it's on one of these journeys that David actually comes to the the battle line, and the, the men have drawn up, before battle, they're giving their war cry, and David hears Goliath, and he hears what he says, and he hears him defying and, and, and mocking Israel, and ultimately by, I say by implication, the God of Israel, and he's challenging for a man to come out and fight him again and again and again, and so this has been happening for 40 days. so during, during this trip he comes and he drops off the food with someone else to keep it and he starts going into all the soldiers and asking questions and what's going on here. And, and one, of the, one of the people there started to say, you know what, um, if, if there's a man who will kill him, the king will do some things for him. And what does he say? He'll give him great riches. He'll give him this, his daughter. He'll give his family freedom. Now we go to chapter 17, verse 26. Here are the words out of David's mouth. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now those first words that we hear out of David's mouth, by the way, in this whole book, these are the first words words that we hear from David you can hear this heart that is full of theology that understands who the God of Israel is and it's a heart that is moved to defend the honor of the Lord so he's coming and he's hearing for the first time Goliath come out and defy Israel, and he is concerned about the reproach against Israel and the reproach against the God of Israel. He's concerned about his honor. And so he uses the expression, these uncircumcised Philistines." And it's an echo of Jonathan, Saul's son, in the words that he says in chapter 14, verse six. Remember Jonathan, he, I mean, he was that character, just like, man, we, we love Jonathan. He's going with faith and he's going with strength and he's going to say, if God's going to do it, he's going to do it and I'm ready to go. And there's, there's a sense in which David is very, very much like that in his response here. But then his brother, Eliab, hears him talking with the other group of soldiers, asking the question, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? And his big brother comes, and and his anger is kindled. And you can just understand if you've ever had a big brother with a little brother, um, you've seen this kind of stuff going on. It's like you know, well, yeah, well, you can't do such and such, and you know, you're just a puny little thing, right? It's that kind of a taunting stuff. And and, and so you, you hear this in the in the interaction with Eliab to his his brother. Look at verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother heard when he spoke to them and Eliab's anger was kindled against David and he said, "Why have you come down? And with whom have you left these few sheep in the wilderness?" David, you're just a you're just a pain in the neck. You're pretty much insignificant. Go back to those few little sheep you have. Leave the big boys to do what the big boys do. He even says, I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. You just want to be here to see it. You know, just full of talk. And here's Eliab making judgments about his brother and what's going on in his heart based on what he can see and what he's heard as far as the questions are concerned. But he couldn't be more wrong about what was going on in his brother's heart, the heart that was after God's own heart. But let's think about Eliab's thinking here. Let's just be be honest about it, right? Is he really that far off from from a human perspective? Is he really that far off? And I would say he's probably not. It it is reasonable to think that the snotty-nosed runt of the family has no idea about what he's talking about. It's pretty reasonable for Eliab, even if he's speaking out of embarrassment, to think, hey, David, why are you even asking these questions like you're going to do anything about it? Go home and get back to your PlayStation. And when you're a big boy, then maybe you can come out and play with us. And so David's, what have I done now? And was it not but a word? is simply the typical response of a younger brother. What? Am, am I not allowed to speak? So I mean here's this, this older brother that is just mocking his younger brother, who is scorning his younger brother, that is ridiculing his younger brother, by saying, You are pretty insignificant, David. Just just go back. You're being a pain in the neck. Now Eliab is a mirror. As a character in the story, he is a mirror to help us understand a little bit about what's taking place. He's a mirror of, of Saul, if you remember. He was just like him. That's why Samuel chose him, because Samuel hadn't gotten through that whole concept of how does God view man? But he's also a mirror of someone else in this story. With his big mouth, dripping contempt for his pathetic runt of a brother, Eliab, is a mirror of Goliath. He is Goliath before Goliath. In other words, before David gets to the Goliath, he has to get through who? Eliab. And he's mocking and scorning him. Dale Davis says it this way. One might say David has to fight three Goliaths in this chapter. From Eliab, he faces the contempt of Goliath. And in Saul, he meets the mind of Goliath But in all three cases, we will see that David is fighting only for the honor of his living Lord. So David, you are insignificant. Well, there are people that hear what David was saying as he's asking questions, and they go to Saul, the king, and so Saul asks for David to come and to meet with him. And here is what David says. You wonder whether David has been meditating on that statement. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Because you hear it in what he says here. Let not man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. To which Saul responds, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. So look, young man. He is a man of war, and you pose no threat to him at all. You wouldn't stand a chance. You are pathetically inexperienced. To which David responds by saying, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion and a bear and took the lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you chased a lion down? When was the last time you took a bear and grabbed it by the scruff of its neck and took the little lamb out of the mouth of that beast? Now remember, we talked about this last week, when the Spirit of God rushes upon one of God's deliverers, they do mighty things, right? And one of the examples that we looked at was Samson. What were we told about Samson when he was under the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit? What did he do to a lion? He tore it apart, just like you would a young goat, which we all relate to. Now, I just want to emphasize here this story of David and Goliath. is a story about a spirit-empowered deliverer. This passage is not saying, you need to be like David. Go out and chase your lions. But see, God has already been at work in David's life, and he's already experienced this incredible Holy Spirit power to be able to defend his little lambs. So we pick it up here at verse 36. This is all in a day's work for David as a shepherd, chasing down lions, chasing down these, these, these bears. In verse 36, he continues on, your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. And here's the question, why, implied, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Now friends, this, this theme is building in this chapter. All right, Goliath comes out, I defy all of you. And David comes along and he hears the, I defy you. And he's saying, why isn't anyone doing something about this guy? I'm going I'm to stand up and I'm going to defend the honor of the living God. Verse 37, and David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. He is basing his confidence not on his inner strength, not on his self-esteem, but he's basing his confidence on the fact that he knows, number one, that he's been anointed, number two, he has experienced the power of that Holy Spirit rushing on him and the effects of that, and he is ready to do what God wants him to do, and he's willing to step out and to counter that defiance with God at work in his life, trusting that God is going to do it. So the motive of David's heart is the honor of God and the strength to stand up for God comes from the schoolroom of shepherding. And now David is confident that it is the Lord who will deliver him and we must keep the deliverance in verse 37 as an interpretive tool for understanding what he's talking about in verses 34 through 36. You see, it is God that delivered the lamb from the mouth of the lion. It's God that delivered the lamb from the mouth of the bear. But he delivered that lamb through David. It's God who will deliver. It's God who has delivered. And he will continue to deliver. In other words, the circumstances may vary, but God is the same whether he's with the sheep or facing the ultimate enemy. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. But what do we already know about David? Verse six, or chapter 16, the Lord was with him. It's part of his reputation. And then interestingly enough, Saul says to David, hey, put on my armor. Now I know a lot of people make a lot about this, you know, don't go out, you know, serving the Lord in armor that's not made for you, and all this kind of stuff, right? There may be elements of truth that you could say that, you know, God wants you to be the you that He made you to be, and that kind of stuff, right? Um, but you know, you wonder what's going on in, in in Saul's head, and Scripture doesn't tell us. But it could be relief, it could be fear, it could be despair, it could be apathy. Remember, he's he's the guy who's supposed to be going out there. So when he says, all right, go, the Lord be with you, that's not a small statement. Because if David loses, what happens? All of Israel now has to serve the Philistines. Now God is surprising us once again. We are surprised that a little shepherd boy would come to a battle and that he would be the vehicle that God seems to be choosing to bring about the deliverance of Israel. If you've never read this story for the first time, if you've never read it before, you're just like, huh? Okay, well, we're so used to it, we know the story. But God is slowly revealing to us the character of David, what's motivating him, and surprising us with how he is using him. So let's now move to Goliath. All right? Eliab said, hey, listen, you're pathetically insignificant. Saul says, you're pathetically inexperienced. Of course, David says, well, you don't quite have it correct. Goliath, then, you're pathetically inept. At last, we come to this combat itself, but it really isn't much of a combat, is it? I mean, it is, but it doesn't last long. But once again, the narrator allows Goliath to dominate the story. Goliath apparently likes to dominate the story. He's used to being the one who dominates the story. And if you were nine foot six, people would let you dominate the story. But I want you to notice as we read at verse 41 and following, five times he specifically mentions the Philistine. He moved, he looked, he said, he cursed, and he said, All right? Just think through the way in which he's putting him on display again here. Verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. He looked at his appearance. Get that? And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. So Goliath is insulted. You send me a stick to fight this battle? You think that I'm a dog? I'm gonna go chasing after a stick or I'm gonna be beaten into submission by sticks? But Goliath with his pagan heart is guilty of looking at man from the outward appearance rather than the heart. And he's going to regret it. The real focus of this chapter is not in the action, as I've said, but in the words spoken, especially the words of Goliath, and in particular, David. And the words of Goliath are marked by insult, ridicule, defiance, and scorn for David, the armies of Saul, as well as by implication, the God of Israel. And it is that defiance and mockery that has stirred the heart of David to defend the honor of the Lord. So now David stands before Goliath with his staff and a sling of five smooth stones in his pouch. I just want to pause here. Don't think of little pebbles. When we talk about five smooth stones, we're talking about between two to three inches in diameter. Pretty full pouch. It was a skill to use the sling and it could be a very, very um, powerful weapon with the right kind of skill, that stone could travel between 100 and 150 miles an hour and could cause a lot of damage, okay? All right, so this is not, this is not just kind of like you know, a little thing you know, where it's like a little pea hitting you on the head type thing, no, this, is, this was a formidable weapon. But the focus is not so much on the sling, but on David's speech that is anchored in rich theology, This is the third such speech in this chapter. In verse 26, in the face of the soldiers, he's saying, what's gonna happen to this Philistine who's defying Israel? In verse 34 through 37, in the face of Saul, he brings it up again. Now, verses 45 through 47, he speaks in the face of Goliath, and it's as if the narrator takes a backseat in explaining these events and allows the words of David to do his bidding. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and with spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you that's a plural you into his hand now listen David can talk corpses and flesh-eating birds and beasts just like Goliath. But David doesn't beat around the bush. You have defiled or defied the Lord of hosts, the God of armies, and today, for all to see, the God of Israel will deliver you into my hand. And it is not David's skill that is the focus here, but God's honor that is on display And the papers the next morning will tell the story of power and might, not of David, but of the God of Israel. That's the point he's making here. I am coming to you. I will kill you. But it is God that you are offending here. He is the one that you have defied. He is the one that you've mocked. He is the one that you've scorned. Now certainly, David is coming in his weakness, this little weak shepherd boy is standing up to the defiance of this Philistine champion and the God of Israel who delivered David will now deliver him again this day. God takes the insignificant. He takes those who um, are really inexperienced and he takes those who seem inept to be the vehicles through which he accomplishes great things. Now, I want to be careful here because, as I said, we don't want to read ourselves into David. We can glean things that we admire about David and say that's character that's good, but there's a focus here that I think is really, really important because Goliath was the champion of the Philistines. David ultimately, in fighting that battle and chasing uh, um, Goliath down and in, in, in grabbing his sword, killing him and then chopping his head off, stands victorious, wins the battle. The Israelites in Judah go and they, they, they you know, kill as many of the Philistines as they can and um, they are victorious that day and God is satisfied that day. The people are delivered that day and the defiance has been squelched that day from the Philistines. But there's another champion that we need to see. And that champion is Christ. You see, Christ is the champion, not just of Israel, but of all who believe. We think about David. David is a rising king in his own way, chosen by God for the people of Israel. But as we look ahead into the New Testament, we are told in the book of Hebrews that there is a greater David. And this greater David is Christ. And he is a champion for all who believe. Now what's interesting is this word champion. The word champion comes from two Hebrew words. And it means the man who is in between. The man in between. So when Goliath comes out, he stands in between the Philistines and the Israelites. When David went out to battle, he stood along with Goliath in between the Philistines and the Israelites. And Jesus Christ, who is our champion, also stands in between. He stands in between Satan and God. He stands in between us and God. He stands in the place where he is protecting us from the evils of Satan because Satan is totally and completely under the sovereign power of God. And now, some things that we need to think about as far as who Christ is in the story as we think about him being our champion. Turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15. I just want to highlight one verse of scripture there. Colossians (coughs) chapter 2 and verse 15. It says this He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Here is Christ, our warrior, our champion who carries out the battle and is victorious. He is the captain, the warrior that we follow. But not only that, Christ is our mediator who stands between us and God. Now, I just was thinking through the realities of this. Back in 1 Samuel, and just muse with me, if you would, as we think through the implications of this. 1 Samuel chapter chapter 2. And here we have the interaction between Eli and his wicked sons. And they are profaning the sacrifices. We'll pick it up at at verse 24. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading about. If someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And what, what was Eli saying there? He's saying, listen, if, you know, we, can, we can make reconciliation between men, but if there is no sacrifice, there is no mediation. And so if you are profaning the very means by which people can mediate in their relationship with God, if that's profaned, there is no mediation going on. What they need is a proper person to mediate for them. And that ultimate person who is the mediator is Christ. And as mediator, he does some things. And let's just think through a number of uh, things that that Christ does as mediator. I put them all up here kind of in a list. But he is our redeemer. He pays for for our sin. You did not pay for your sin. But he has. And he did that in your place. He suffered when you should suffer. And so in that sense, he is your mediator. Secondly, by virtue of that, he is the reconciler as the mediator. He is the one that reconciles you to God. It is through Christ that we have that reconciliation to God. Again, his position as mediator, his position as champion here, is one of going in between and standing and being our deliverer. He is our savior because he is the one who was that sacrifice once for all, that ultimate sacrifice that all the other sacrifices pointed to. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 2, when Eli's talking to his sons about profaning the sacrifice, that very sacrifice they were profaning was pointing to that ultimate sacrifice that was once for all. So not only as the Savior, but also as our advocate. He stands, Jesus stands, and he defends us when Satan comes and he brings accusations against us. And he stands and he defends us by saying, hey listen, I have paid for their sin. He's our advocate. He stands between. He is our mediator. And the final word here is this. He's our intercessor. He goes before the Father. He prays on our behalf as that priest would mediating before the Father for his children, caring for his children. Now, friends, as we think through the story here, as we think through the need that Israel had for a deliverer, David comes and steps in the gap with his weakness, but what's driving him is the integrity of his God. It is the honor that is being defied, and he is not willing to put up with it. And so he goes out with his strength that comes from God, trusting in what God has already done in his life, saying, I'm willing to be that man. I'm willing to step here in the middle and be that champion. If this is part of God's will, I'm confident that he will deliver me. Now friends, just bringing things now to a close, I want to finish with a couple of chapters or a couple of looks at Psalm One and Psalm two. Because you know, even Goliath, in the face of David, should have responded differently. Should have listened to what David was saying. Now I love Psalm one. Blessed is the what man. That doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields fruit in his season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not what's the next word? Stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. There are these two groups. Some will stand, and some will not. Verse six, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, keep reading down in chapter two. Why do the nations rage? Is there a nation raging in our text today? Yeah. Yeah and their champion is the one that is calling out in rage and defiance and the people's plot in vain the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together that expression set themselves is the exact same word that is used in 1 Samuel 17 where it says and Goliath came and stood before the Israelites he sat himself there in defiance kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the lord and against the anointed saying let us burst their bonds apart let's cast away their course from us he who sits in the heavens what laughs and and the lord holds them in derision then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying as for me i have set my king on zion my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. See, this, these are all references now to Christ, but you can see the way that it weaves into the story here. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. These are the same kings that were raging. These are the same peoples that were plotting in vain. He says, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The first thing I want you to see is this. Even Goliath, in hearing David's Honorable testimony about the God of Israel could have stepped back and bowed and kissed the sun, so to speak, and worship the God of Israel. But he would not. And because he would not, the wrath and the anger of God was unleashed through his deliverer that day. A young man he would not expect. A young man who would ultimately point to the king of kings, the Lord of lords. It says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Friends, our job is not to be like David here. Our job is to sit as the soldiers of the army And to say, we need a champion. And there's only one person that can fit that role. And that one person is Christ himself. And so we sit back in the army of Israel, so to speak. And we say, it is a good thing to be in the right army today. It's a good thing to be concerned about the honor of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is a good thing to have as our champion, Christ himself, who not only is a warrior, but also is our mediator, who himself fights the battle and delivers us from the very, very intimidating enemy. That is out there. See, we need that champion, and we need to see how wonderful and awesome, how beautiful that champion is. It's a far cry from build your self-esteem and go fight your own giants. Let me step back, though, and say, life is going to be full of problems and difficulties and struggles, right? But who do you lean on? You see, it is Christ who comes and is your strength when you are weak. It is Christ who satisfies. It is Christ who provides. It is Christ that delivers. It is Christ that helps you with those problems. It's not so much that you're fighting those giants, but you are saying, Christ, I need for you to be the one who goes before me and fights this battle in my place, and I'm gonna trust you to be my champion." to be my warrior, because you're already in that place of being my mediator. Lord, help us as we think through this passage, as we think through the details of this text, to wrestle, and Lord, to see the beauty of who you are and what you've accomplished in your son Jesus Christ. Lord, help us not to say, more than this text is saying. But Lord, help us not to say less. Help us see, Lord, that David, along with the other judges, is used as a deliverer to relieve the suffering and the oppression of your people. But Lord, that is a foreshadowing of your coming as a deliverer for us. Lord, we need you desperately. And even we who are your children now, although we have been brought into the family of God by virtue of what you have done on the cross, we still need you as our champion, as our mediator. Lord, help us as we think through the things that we have before us not to think that we have to be like David and somehow fine-tune all these different things in our lives so that we can beat this giant that's before us. Lord, help us to realize that, yes, there are things that you've called us to, but we can step back and we can let the champion do what the champion does best, and that is to fight on our behalf to bring glory and honor to the name of the Godhead. Lord, help us to do that too. We ask in your precious name, amen.